Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to How to Create a Healthy and Effective Therapeutic Relationship. Four tips to help the relationship with your client work quickly, deeply, and well. It was a tragedy, but I didn't know it at first. And in the long, shadowed gloom of a winter evening, as barely formed snow shyly brushed the window pane, Mary painted the painful picture of what had happened to her husband, Dave. Now, Dave, her husband, had been depressed. His much-loved brother had recently been killed in a car accident. He was plagued by worry about a court case with an ex-business partner, and he was staring down the barrel of bankruptcy. But worst of all, his feelings about himself had changed. As he hit middle age, he felt he had nothing to show for his life. He started to talk bitterly of being a lousy husband, a bad father, and a failure. But he was good in so many ways, Mary told me, her tone almost pleading. Eventually, she urged Dave to see a therapist. Knowing Dave, he must have been desperate to agree to see a counsellor, Mary said. And he never liked to talk about anything emotional. It was a big deal for him to go see someone. But go see someone he did. How did it go? I asked. Well, he only saw her the once, she said, with a sort of infinite sadness. And now, like a distant but shrill distress signal in a wind-blasted sea, something deep within me whispered that Dave was dead. And, I asked, did the therapy help, even though it was only one session? Help, she said. After his session with her, he just couldn't stop weeping. He told me that the therapist hadn't even really looked at him. That it was just 50 minutes of information taking, and he filled out one form after another, without either speaking or being spoken to by the therapist. And I remember him telling me that he didn't think the therapist liked him very much even. And and more than ever, he seemed to believe that it really was hopeless, that even therapy couldn't help him. So this was one chance of the therapist to really help him. And I, I didn't really say anything. I just let Mary continue. And I reassured him, she said, It was just the first session that she was there to help him and that um, it wouldn't just be taking notes after that and, uh, you know, she would interact with him and so forth. But I think, she said, that he'd been so prepared to talk after all the years of not talking that he was completely thrown when he didn't get the chance and it made him even more despondent. Or maybe it was just the way that he saw it. And... um, My therapy room darkened at this point as the snow began to fall harder, the flakes thudding audibly against the glass in the chill, darkening wind. And for a few moments, there was nothing but a kind of foreboding silence. And eventually, Mary spoke again. Three days after the therapy session, she said, Dave, my husband, killed himself. And I could see how hard it was for her to even form those words. Decades on, the pain still cast a shadow over Mary's eyes and mouth. She was quite elderly at this point herself. 
He threw himself from Beachy Head. And the words caught in her throat as she said that. And suddenly I had no Dave. And now the tears came in my session and she really began to cry. All I wanted to do was to talk to him, to tell him he was a good man and that he was loved so, so much. And she trailed off at this point. So this tells us something really important. Now, it's not a question of just not harming people, but of course, actively helping our clients. Now, Mary was a client of mine and she felt terrible that she had recommended Dave to seek any help because she felt that somehow it was connected to his suicide. Yet she knew that it wasn't really her fault and no one could actually blame the therapist for being cold or bureaucratic when she could have been warm and human, if that's even how it was. You know, we can't really know from the outside. We can't absolutely judge this situation. Maybe Dave would have killed himself anyway. Again, we don't know that either. And we can't know for sure what happened in that session or how connected it was to Dave's suicide. Now, I'm not saying that we should never be judgmental. You know, without judgment, there can be no human volition or free thought. But we don't have enough information to be totally judgmental about the therapist in that instance. That's not really what I'm talking about. Not really. You know, we can't absolutely know what happened. But there may be something to be learned from this tragedy. What we do know is that the therapist wasn't able to prevent Dave's suicide. One thing it seems that the therapist didn't supply was that most powerful antidepressant on earth, hope. The doctor's Hippocratic Oath urges us to first do no harm. But what if that isn't enough? Okay, certainly in the first place we shouldn't do any harm, but we need to then actively help. Maybe we can improve on um, Hippocrates and say, first do actual good. And establishing a therapeutic relationship with your client is the first step, especially if they're desperate. It's just filling out forms isn't a human interaction. It's a bureaucratic process. The therapeutic relationship is important because therapy isn't just about what we do, but also who we are with our clients. If the therapist has an outmoded ideology, lacks flexibility, or is too steeped in being the professional or bureaucratic note-taking over actual human connection, then the therapeutic relationship, if it can even be called that, may do no good at all. It may even be counterproductive. Conversely, if the therapeutic principles are good enough, then even computerized therapy can be highly effective without the therapeutic relationship actually uh, being necessary. So see reference one in the written article. But in the majority of cases, a strong, well-cultivated therapeutic relationship is the best, perhaps the only, basis for healthy, effective therapeutic outcomes. We need to be human with our clients and empathetic and enable them to feel understood, but also to have some hope grow within them again. So what do we really mean by a therapeutic relationship? What is a therapeutic relationship? There's little doubt about the power of a warm human encounter. Okay, And this uh, pertains to all of us in everyday life. Clients need to feel safe. 
listen to, relaxed, and able to voice ideas and opinions without feeling the need to please the therapist, nor the fear of displeasing them. In some ways, the therapeutic relationship has become somewhat sanctified, a kind of hallowed contract of trust between client and therapist, and psychology textbooks uh, heave and strain to contain its almost holy pact. You know, we hear about um, boundaries and ethics and sometimes of transference, which is the client meeting their needs for intimacy through the therapy, not outside of the therapy. Okay, The therapeutic uh, nomenclature almost fetishizes this holy communion, the therapeutic alliance. Okay, so we've got all that. But on a very basic level, we have one troubled primate sitting down with another primate who can help them feel better, think healthier, and meet their emotional needs in life more easily and naturally. This therapeutic relationship is not new. In fact, it existed long before therapy was even a word, or perhaps long before words existed. At its heart, the therapeutic relationship is simply an exchange of decency, openness, and friendliness between one human being and another, hopefully in both directions. The relationship is the container in which the skills of the therapist can best be used to help the client. So most relationships require a sort of exchange of one person's needs with the other person's needs, at least to, you know, some of the time. So you listen to someone and they listen to you. You know, if you give me, me attention, you expect me to ask about you as well in a, in a social setting. Okay. It's not just me talking about me to you all the time. There's an exchange. And so the relationship feels more real. If I steal all the attention by speaking endlessly about myself, never asking you anything about the, uh, about yourself, then of course the relationship shrivels. Okay. People who are good at relationships intuitively know about this exchange aspect to all personal relationships, give and take of human needs. But the modern therapeutic relationship is, of course, a little different to that. Within the therapeutic relationship, the exchange of needs doesn't work in the same way. It shouldn't work in the same way because money is being exchanged. So there's an exchange of money and the emotional needs of the client need, of course, to take precedence. Okay, I'm not going to talk to my clients endless, endlessly about myself. Okay, we don't need our clients' adulation or respect any more than it is useful for their therapeutic progress. And we shouldn't draw our natural human needs for attention from our clients either. You know, we're paid in money. We don't need to be paid in any other way. So empathy, space to talk, encouragement, and prioritizing client experience are all part of a good therapeutic relationship. And if we have a relationship of trust and warmth, then within that relationship uh, framework, we can sometimes work in unconventional ways that might not superficially seem so nurturing. No, we can be a little harsh or paradoxical or contrary because we have good rapport with the clients. So, you know, we can use some of that because we've established a good relationship with them. So on top of that, and this is an area not often discussed, but nevertheless important. For therapy to happen, learning has to take place. And sometimes in order to learn, the client needs to be challenged to some extent. 
And like all relationships, the therapeutic relationship needs more than one tone. Okay, and here's why. So we don't want to get stuck on therapy mode with our clients. So what do I mean by this? Some therapists may slip into sympathy mode and have trouble getting out of sympathy mode. They may look slightly pained when they're listening to their client, you know, and, and, and when they talk to you, uh, they talk like an adult comforting a, a child with a stubbed toe, you know. They talk in hushed tones and nod sympathetically to anything and everything you say, and it's like they have one mode, and that's their therapy mode. And they may believe this is the best and only way to instigate therapy. It's almost as if they're acting the role of therapist. But there's a danger here. Okay, the subliminal message is you are damaged and you're vulnerable and fragile. Okay, and I'm not saying this mode of communication isn't useful sometimes, but it shouldn't be used exclusively, even in the, in the presence of uh, real client resilience and personal resources. You know, some of our clients have incredible strengths. Okay, and we need to um, convey that back to them through the way that we communicate with them not treat them like, like uh, as though they have to be wrapped in cotton wool all the time. All communication is more of a fluid dance than a one-size-fits-all mode. And we risk unconsciously reinforcing clients' limiting beliefs with every well-meant nod of the head. Besides, if someone can only do sympathy, we soon tire of their company. Okay, If they can only act sympathetic, then they become difficult for us to be with, in a sense, especially if we're not used to sympathy. So take them on a practice run. Moving on from these uh, perhaps seldom explored considerations, the therapeutic relationship should never replace real-life relationships for the client. Okay, So the therapist shouldn't be a replacement for someone who is real and consistent in their life, so to speak. But sometimes when clients feel safe with us, they can use us as practice training wheels for the development of healthier relationships in their wider life outside of therapy. For example, a client can learn to relate to a whole gender or type of person simply by developing a healthy, fair and respectful relationship with their therapist. For example, if you're a member of um, Uncommon Practitioners TV, you'll see my session with Francis, a client needing help with long-term depression resulting from an abusive past and childhood. Okay. And after several sessions, she tells me how she feels. As she has learned to trust me, she's realized she no longer fears men. Okay. So her therapeutic relationship has kind of given her a template and she starts to feel a bit differently about men in general. And that is at least in part, thanks to the therapeutic relationship that we've established. Maybe I'm the first man who hasn't let her down Okay, or has really listened to her, or has been respectful to her. Okay, or maybe that's the way it seems. Talking with me has become, in some small way, practice for Francis in order to develop better relationships with men outside of therapy. Practice to build her confidence and feel more comfortable around all men and start to let go of her blanket preconceptions about men on the whole. Okay, so. With all this in mind, here are my do's and don'ts when establishing the therapeutic relationship. Okay, so four tips for a healthy and effective therapeutic relationship. Number one, make the most of the golden hour. It breaks my heart 
when I hear that the first hour, maybe the client's first hour ever of therapy is misspent simply gathering information or is bogged down in bureaucracy. This is the time to build rapport with our clients, the time to connect with them, to listen to them, to encourage them, but also to inhabit their perspective so that they feel uniquely understood by us. This is the opportunity they've been waiting for to lay down their emotional burden for a while, to be treated with respect, like a person and not just a number to be processed. We have a massive opportunity in the first session precisely because it is the first session. Okay, and it might be the first session or the first time they've ever been able to talk about what they, they want to talk about. The newness of the session creates an intensity of focus, a trance that can be used to help instill hope and make changes. And this opportunity should never be missed. So the first session or the first moments with a client are so important. If they have to fill out forms, get them to do that before they actually come in to see you. And in fact, this may be the only chance we get to help the person, because if we don't, they may only attend one session. So we need to do as much as we can, as fast as we can for them. And we need to do one thing above all else. So number two, do give them hope. Hope is like the sun, which, as we journey towards it, casts the shadow of our burden behind us. So said Samuel Smiles, okay, which is a very positive name. Now, Dave didn't have hope, and it seems his one and only therapy session didn't give him any hope either. Okay, that was the golden hour. And in fact, according to Mary, he seemed to have lost hope after his form-filling session with the therapist, and he, the, the one, and, and he felt that she didn't even like him, and she didn't really want him there. Okay, which matched his depressive, you know, biases at the time. Positive expectation is so vital. It doesn't have to be huge, just a smidgen of hope, a small flicker can light a path out from a dark cave. Even if the hope stems from the simple fact that someone cares about them, someone is there to listen and is prepared to listen and is being nice to them and can reassure them that depressed people do get better Therapists could have done all these things if they didn't. But we can often do better than that, and we should do it straight off the bat as soon as possible. So the placebo effect is immense. So it's easy to pass the placebo effect off as some ghost in the machine inconvenience that occurs in physical medicine. But the fact that placebo pills have been shown to be as effective in treating depression as antidepressant drug products is glowing evidence of just how important positive expectation really is for depression. See reference to it in, in the written article. So cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, seems to be about half as effective at treating depression as it used to be. And researchers were left scratching their heads as to why this might be until it was considered that the newness of the technique had subsided. Okay, so the placebo element to the therapy may have worn away. So psychotherapy have placebo effects as well. See reference three in the, in, in the written article. So the placebo effect isn't smoke and mirrors, it's real. It mobilizes powerful inner healing mechanisms, both psychological and physical. Check out reference four. 
So a skilled therapist knows how to utilize this natural healing response in their clients and build positive expectation around therapy within a reassuring framework. This is so, so important. Client beliefs and expectations and trust in the process are a major factor in how well they actually do in therapy. You know, we want them to have hope enough to at least come back and give it a try and keep going with the expectation that no matter what it feels like now, they will get better. So hope is so vital that it can override damaging emotional habits. We know that over-analysis and brooding or rumination is emotionally toxic and can produce and maintain clinical depression and anxiety conditions. Check out reference five. But if someone ruminates while they have hope, the toxic effects of over-ruminating or dwelling seem to be mitigated. See reference six. So that's how powerful hope is. Rumination is uh, depressing, but if we ruminate excessively with hope, then the depressing effects are minimized. The time we have with our clients is a unique chance to learn what troubles them and help them feel heard and understood. But it's also a time to listen to what they want. For clients with negative bias, we can't instill hope by being too positive as this risks breaking rapport with them because, you know, it's so different from their worldview. And, you know, it risks us seeming not to understand their perspective. But we can begin to light a spark in more subtle ways. We can help them to feel they might, just might, have a chance of feeling better. But if a client comes for therapy multiple times, you need to be aware of a very real danger that can occur. So number three, don't let therapy fossilize. So what do I mean by that? Well, as the quote goes, you can never awaken using the same system that put you to sleep in the first place. And that was G.I. Gurdjieff, the mystic that said that. Okay, so life can put us to sleep. Habit can put us to sleep very quickly. And the freshness of reality can quickly become not fresh. Any recurrent experience can lose its juice, so to speak, and become predictable and come to feel like simply going through the motions or a chore or routine. And therapy, therapy can come to feel like that too. The tendency for repeating experiences to become fossilized, to put us to sleep, in Gurdjieff's words, is an oft overlooked phenomenon in the world, I think. From attending class to going to church to being with the person we love to therapy sessions, repetitive experiences can lose us their capacity to help as change and grow as people. And this happens when a situation becomes too mechanical and predictable, or it feels predictable to us. Focus dissipates and weakens, and so does the opportunity for learning. We stop focusing so much, we stop learning so much. And this happens because of the basic emotional and physical principle of pattern matching, in which environmental triggers produce a repeating emotional response in a mechanical way. So you're back in the same old room with the same old person and part of you is going through the motions and another part of you is just switched off. So, you know, if you, if you have the same old commute to work, it's almost as if you do it sleepwalking. People who've had lots of previous therapy may have been trained by that therapy, depending on the ideology of the therapists, to cry during sessions. 
Okay, and this becomes a Pavlovian response whenever they're in a therapeutic situation. It becomes mechanically wheeled out simply because this person is once again sitting on a therapy chair. Okay, they expect to cry because they've been trained to cry, in a sense, through repeated experiences of therapy, perhaps lasting years. Therapists who don't understand the mechanical nature of experiences like this may look for causes of the tears and forget that the client may be subconsciously producing a learned response. Of course, they may be genuinely crying as well because they're upset over an, over an issue, but it may also be this, this kind of um, pattern-matching, learning Pavlovian response as well. Now, the legendary psychiatrist Dr. Milton Erickson would see clients in different places, move the furniture around in his office and generally keep the client awake to change in therapeutic reality. It used shock and, and so forth to keep them awake. Okay. Uh, and we're all put to sleep by habit and repeating cues. You know, same office, same chair, same type of conversation may take the living heart out of the experience. So intensity and dynamism are required to keep therapy from becoming a staid and dead thing. Okay. Surprise and conversational reframing in which feelings are reframed are ways of keeping therapy live. And and uh, paradoxically, by hypnotizing somebody, you can awaken them okay, out of sleep, out of another kind of sleep. So part of the therapeutic relationship is also in knowing when it must end and how that needs to happen. But there's one more risk to the client. Number four, don't become a replacement for real life needs. Now, I've touched upon this already. The therapeutic relationship can certainly for a while start to fulfill a need that may never before have been met for the client, perhaps ever. Maybe you're the first person who has ever seemed to have understood them or cared about them even and helped them to feel psychologically robust, to believe in themselves and to feel free to explore their life more positively. Maybe you're the first person who's even showed much of an interest in them. But therapy should help the client meet these kinds of needs, not just during the time that they're with the therapist, but also outside of the therapy situation so that they don't become too dependent on us. When this happens, the client is less likely to get hooked on the therapy or the therapist because um, you may have fulfilled those needs for a while, but you're aware of those needs and then you encourage them to meet them beyond yourself. So if the therapist and or client is not clear about the basic emotional needs, the primal needs that we all share, then the client may meet their needs for meaning, purpose, self-esteem, giving and receiving attention, and even love and emotional intimacy purely through the therapy. And they may never move on from that. So in a sense, for therapy to be clean, the practitioner needs to understand this and help the client get these needs met outside of therapy so that dependency doesn't happen, okay, or doesn't happen beyond a certain period and a certain point, okay, so the client has autonomy. As the great human-given psychologist Joe Griffin once said, a good therapist should not leave footprints in the lives of their clients. But it works both ways. You know, every therapist should meet his or her needs outside of their therapy practice. They should have enough friends, enough outside opportunity to feel good about themselves, not related to therapy, intimacy, and so forth. 
that they have spare capacity enough to help their clients without being tempted to unconsciously try to draw their needs from their clients because those they're so hungry or thirsty for those needs because they're not meeting those needs in their wider life. When we're hungry, we'll try to find food anywhere. But attempts to meet emotional hungers are often unconscious. We're not often aware of what we're seeking, what our what what a purpose our behavior has. One client told me his old therapist would talk for hours about himself. And he said, I used to feel sorry for him, the therapist, because I had the feeling I was the only one he spoke to in the whole week and the only person who listened to him. Okay, so that's clearly not how it should have been. So to sum up, the therapeutic relationship should be open, relaxed and relaxing, caring and above all effective in creating the right environment for developing client well-being and sustainable health. Words like um, boundaries, ethical and nurturing are only as good as the reality behind the words. It's not enough just to say them. And the extent to which the purposes for those realities are understood. Okay, why are we being nurturing? How can we be nurturing? Okay, what do we mean by boundaries? A therapeutic relationship may last as little as a few moments. Okay, you can do credible things in, a, in an instant sometimes with some people, or as long as many months for some clients who may have few of their needs met in their current life or have psychological damage from the past to sort out. The therapeutic relationship is unlike real-world relationships in that it is caring but impartial. So, of course, the therapist doesn't play games in order to meet their own emotional needs. The therapeutic relationship shouldn't contain its own baggage from the past, okay, and should lack many of the feelings and associations of everyday relationships, but still have that beating heart of warmth and life in it. Now, maybe you or I couldn't have helped Mary's decent, caring, beloved Dave. Maybe we wouldn't have made any difference either. But maybe, just maybe, we could have. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog.